0: Welcome to the Sibling Leadership Network podcast. The Sibling Leadership Network is a national nonprofit whose mission is to provide siblings of individuals with disabilities the information, support, and tools to advocate with their brothers and sisters and to promote the issues important to us and our entire families. Hello, and thank you for tuning in for another episode of the SLN Podcast. Today, we will be discussing spirituality for SIBs and supports for our siblings with disabilities to participate in faith-based communities. I would like to welcome our guests, Dr. Sarah Hall from the Institute of Community Integration, University of Minnesota, and Texas A&M doctoral student, Sarish Shikarpurin. Thank you for joining us today.
1: Thank you for having us.
0: Um, I'd like to just start off and ask you to please introduce yourselves and anything important about yourselves that you'd like everybody to know.
1: Okay, well, I am Sarah Hall, and like you said, I'm from the Institute on Community Integration, and I am a researcher there. Um, I did kind of grow up in different disability fields where I was a high school special education teacher. I was a professor for many years in special education, and now I get to do research and other projects. So I do have one, I have two brothers, but one has multiple disabilities, and they're more significant. I guess people would say to where he has autism, cerebral palsy, down syndrome, little epilepsy, you know, it's just whatever. He's just Charlie.
2: Thanks Sarah for sharing. Um, Hi everyone. My name is Sarish. I'm a third year doctoral student at Texas A&M. Um, Specifically, I'm researching transition to adulthood outcomes for racially minoritized populations living in the United States, focusing on what are some of their strengths and what are some of um, the ways in which they navigate the transition world, a world that typically hasn't been designed for them or by them. Um, I am a sibling of um, Shazia, who's my little sister, um, little as and she's only one year younger than me. <laughs> um, she was um, diagnosed with autism in middle school, which is quite late, and it could be due to a, that she is a female and a lot of the symptoms or um, symptomology we just didn't um, identify or think about early on. She is currently working. Um, and I'll go into my sister later. I feel like I start with her and then that's kind of where I go. So that's a little bit about me.
0: Thank you very much for sharing. How has being a sibling of an individual with a disability shaped your spiritual journey and perspective?
1: I think for me, I've, I've noticed the gifts that other people have more often. And, you know, some of those hidden gifts are the ones that are smaller, but are really impactful because I've seen like in my brother, how how like the light just kind of shines from him or he'll sing or he'll he's very empathetic but not everyone knows that you can't see it and I think I've been more comfortable with different ways of worshiping just because I see my brother doing it different I'm okay with others doing it different I'm okay with hearing things or seeing things different if somebody's moving a lot and so I think it's just having a more comfort in a variety of approaches really And I think he even felt more of a call to service. And I don't know if it's because of my brother and our situation or just who I am. I like to do the serving part. I enjoy like doing hard work. Sometimes I'm okay with the boring work, but just to support others and work alongside them.
2: You know, my journey is similar. um, And my experiences have been similar to Dr. Hall's as well in that I think my sibling, um, I identify as a Muslim. And so um, within my mosque space, um, I've seen my sister really thrive. um, And some of the ways in which she decides to pray or decides to call on um, to Allah, I've seen her sort of thrive in that space. And I think it's kind of inspired me to work within my mosque as well. Um, I do a lot of work with our special needs um, that we call our special needs um, community, um, individuals with disabilities, and they range from like ages three all the way up to like 65, 70. However, I think for me, I've also become over the years as a teenager, I was very reluctant to work in the mosque space because I saw a lot of exclusionary practices um, with my sister and others. And I kind of rejected religion a lot for (laughs) quite a while because I thought it wasn't a space where me and my family could thrive um, or felt like we belonged, even though we prayed every day for the belongingness and being kind to our neighbors and all those other things. Um, however I think over time her resilience has really inspired me to continue being part of a faith community um, I think despite of the things that she gets told despite the looks that she gets despite all of those things I think she's still there every day. for example this is a holy month for us it's um, Ramadan and we have like a night of power that we call where we pray the whole night and so she's leaving work early to go pray all night and then work the next day while knowing that when she prays really loudly, people will sort of come to her and tell her to stop being loud or to stop moving her body too much or stop using the rosary beads too loud. So like her dedication is inspiring for me and kind of uplifting me in my own faith journey as well.
0: Awesome, thank you both for sharing. What challenges do individuals with disabilities face within faith-based communities?
1: What you were saying, just right into some of the things that initially I think about. Like one of the initial challenges I think about are those looks, those comments, those things. And you know as a family, how much tolerance do you have for that kind of, it's, it feels like a pushback really to you. So I think it's like initially that family's comfort level in being in the area. and then, you know, is there a place for you there? Not that there has to be a special place, but is there any place for you there? When I was very young, we had to switch churches. I grew up um, in the Methodist church. My family's Christian. And when my brother got old enough, which may have been around preschool, kindergarten, somewhere around there, his differences were different enough where they didn't know what to do. And so they, they told him he couldn't come. And so we had to change churches. And so for me, like, is there a place? And I know a lot of people talk about like, oh, being inclusive is the best for everyone. But right now, I think having like that, like a continuum of places to where, where does the family, where does the person feel comfortable? Because I think that's such a challenge where it's, We don't have that place. And I remember when I was um, younger and I went to a different church, I helped start like a friendship ministries program for people with and without disabilities. And so we had people come to church who had never been to our church before. And they met our church members and started. And I was like, this is great. But in my head, there was that back and forth of, well, is it inclusive enough? You know, my plan was to say, "Okay, you start here and then you can get more involved but they loved it. They had a place. And so I think that was something that was and still is a barrier for a lot of people. And also sitting quiet for so long. Who can do that without moving, without coughing, without looking around? Ah, that's so difficult to do.
2: Yeah. You know, um, very, very similar um, in in my religious space as well. And it just, I think, I think the biggest challenge has to be the top down for me, particularly is leadership. So um, the way our mosques works is that there's different leaders that are designated towards each mosque. Um, And so like recently, I I remember I got a call from one of the leaders saying, this child is making too many verbal loud sounds and everyone's coming to me and saying, we should put this child in the back, we should put this and he's like, I don't want to do that because he himself thinks he's being inclusive but at the same time he keeps calling the family to tell them that their child is loud and to the point where the fam- every time he calls a family the the mom picks up and says are you calling me because my kid was loud again and you know it just really makes me think about what what are we doing from the top down in terms of preventing these challenges why is it that the individual who's loud is told to stop doing that, but the congregation members aren't actually invited to be more inclusive or be like, hey, that's okay. I mean, the elderly are quite loud within our mosque as well, and nobody really tells them to stop. Um, People's phones go off and no one really cares. So why is it that this individual is being pushed by society as well as the inclusive mosque space to be conforming to a certain ideal? And so I think that's one of the challenges that I've really had going back and forth is that we push for inclusion from the bottom up. And then at the top level, it's kind of like, well, it is what it is. Or sometimes we don't have those individuals here, which is not true. Um, Mm -hmm. I know for us, a lot of the stereotype is also very evident within our mosque and the, the feelings that we get about people with disabilities is a lot of stigma attached to it. A lot of the parents and even my mom, sometimes like they'll tell me like, I feel embarrassed because people look at me. I feel embarrassed because people want to hush my kid. I feel embarrassed because like people have gone up to my sister and told her things. But my mom was sometimes I think reluctant to defend her because she wanted her to step up and do that. But at the same time, they don't want to be identified as a person with a disability because there's a lot of hush, hush, like there's something off. We don't know what it is. We will not label it but we will just kind of be hushed about it and not mm-hmm. say that it's a disability or like say that it's something that we're thinking about or continuing to work on. So that's kind of been my challenge as well.
1: Yeah, I think the understanding of others of that, it's okay to make noises. I was, I was actually at the gym last night and there was somebody who I believe had autism and making louder noises. My first fear was don't take them out. You know, don't get him, you know, don't take him to the parking lot. Like, let him stay here. Let people get used to hearing things. Let people be okay with him. He was sitting on a mat, rocking back and forth, bouncing off of a ball that was behind him. Let people be okay with that. The more they see him as a person and the more others, people like they interact with them, like that's going to help people become included.
2: Yeah, absolutely. And I think sometimes the challenge is also maybe the, the, fear of backlash and I think if you're afraid of congregation members not coming because a certain person is loud or certain person behaves differently than you then like so be it let them find a different congregation like why like not why take out the one person that comes every time for four people who have a problem I don't know with it but that's kind (laughs) of where my sentiments lie
0: yeah What are some potential benefits individuals with disabilities and their siblings may experience from being a part of a faith-based community?
1: For me growing up, it was really the shared experience that my brother and I and our other brother had with going to church together because all of our other activities were separate. But this was something where we could do it all together. We had like the shared traditions, you know, we could talk about it and then it just paint. I mean, obviously it's a part of our lives, but it, it really brought us closer together. And I think even one benefit, which I'll tell you sometimes didn't feel like a benefit, but Charlie loved the music. It was calming to him. He, you know, he could just listen to it and it just soothed him. And he, for some reason, loved the song Silent Night. And I'll tell you what, we heard that song hummed every day throughout the entire year for years and years straight. But to this day, that's like one of my favorite songs. When it comes to like Christmas Eve and everyone singing it, I can't sing that whole song because it's so meaningful to me. I get choked up because that's Charlie. That's us doing things together. And so for me, that was a really big part of sharing our spirituality.
2: Yeah, that is that remi- yeah, that is so similar to my experience mm-hmm. as well. Um, um, because my my sister, and I think it did bring us together. And I think for her, it was something that was hers that she could do. And it was a scheduled in thing that she did every day. So she didn't have to think about it. It was just something she did. She went every day, did the same exact routine. Does my sister believe in God? And does she understand the prophethood and all of that? I don't know. But is she going to sit there and pray her heart out every day? Absolutely. And I think that matters. And it does bring us together. And I think it honestly made me feel less guilty about activities that I was doing away from her. Because some of them she couldn't be or she didn't want to, or I growing up didn't want her to be a part of them. Um, And so this was a space where I felt like we could still do things together, have shared experiences and also like be together like a family. I think it also provided her with a lot of social support. Like she didn't have a lot of friends growing up. So this was a place where she could at least have acquaintances and say hi to people and um, feel like she belonged in in a larger space.
1: Yeah, that social part is, is important too, even though my brother, Charlie, I don't think he had any actual friends at church, but for me as a sibling to see that people accepted him because he came, you know, every single week he was there and he was with our family just to know that they, they welcomed him and accepted him. Like I felt myself like breathing deeply, like, (sighs) like almost relief, like, okay, there's this one environment where I don't have to like keep my guard up. Like I can actually relax in this environment because I know that they're gonna treat them all right. How can we support
0: our siblings who express an interest in being a part of a faith-based community?
1: That's a good question. I guess it depends on where they're at if they've been a part of it their whole life and just wanna try something else out or if they just wanna, they're interested in like dipping their toe in. Cause I think just talking about it, like describing what actually happens prepare them to say, you know, like, what do you do there? You know, what would you say to people when you arrived, making sure that they're comfortable and having like an idea of what goes on. And I think just trying different things in different ways, you know, like because not everyone can go to like, in my Methodist church, we had a service every Sunday morning, not everyone feels the most, you know, belonging or that, it just doesn't hit them as well as maybe there's a wednesday night service maybe there's the choir they want to be in or they want to do service or something like that so i think like figuring out who they are and what's a good way to kind of try things out a little bit i i definitely really like that
2: because just having that like um pre-conversation would be really cool to see like Where? what do you want to do do you want to pray in the back do you want to be in the front do you want to hold the holy book or like I don't know do you want to be part of this or that I think in addition to that I also um wonder if it would be beneficial for at least for my sister to take on leadership roles within the mosque like you know for us anybody can, you know, sing the, the holy songs, anybody can recite the prayers, you just have to like book an appointment, essentially, in advance. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I would love for her to do that. I think she used to do that when she was younger. And then people just told her all of the things that she wasn't doing right when doing that. For example, like, don't put the holy book on the ground. be fine (laughs) don't do this don't do that you know so she kind of veered off from that so I would encourage her to take more leadership positions um even to be a part of the special needs classes and teach some of them I think that would be really cool um now that she's older and honestly like I think even think about like when she gets older if she lives somewhere else one day by herself like Does she want to be close to this mosque? Is it this specific one? Is she going to go to a different one? I think there'll be a whole change if she were to go to a different one. So that'd be interesting to talk about as well.
1: Yeah, and I think also for my brother, like making sure to connect him with, let me call him nice people. Like they don't have to have special skills or anything, just like somebody who will say hi to him. You know, someone, if like they see him confused somewhere will be like, hey, Charlie, you know, come on over here. And not that anyone's assigned to him, but just to connect them to people to support him throughout. So it's it's more of a community based thing for him.
0: What supports and resources can you recommend for anyone wishing to help their siblings thrive in a faith based community?
1: Um, You know what? I would just first check with like the people at either the church or mosque or wherever you're at to see what's going on right now. What do they know? What, you know, what supports could they bring that you don't see because they're kind of done behind the scenes? Because it's, I think it's hard to find resources and support. And then to take something you found online and like apply it to somewhere where they haven't heard of that. So just see where they're at right now. And, and if they have programs, great. If they don't, you know, how could other people support them? I think peer mentoring could be a really good thing.
2: You know, I was just thinking about that peer mentoring and parent to parent connections. I think for us, that has really thrived is that when, while we don't have any formalized supports, at least not until the past two years, we have now, but even then, like the parents network is so strong. And because of that, the children, the individual network is so strong as well, because they connect, they hang out, they do things together. Um, So I would say like find find other individuals who who also um, could need extra support um, or that you know of. I know for us, there was a whole thing where one person's wheelchair was passed down to like four other people mm-hmm. <laughs> over the course of like a 10-year process. And so because of that, they all like bonded really well um, and the kids hang out and they grew up together and things like that. So just shared experiences like that. And I also would talk to the the leader of the community or whoever the person, um, heading it would be to just be like, Hey, you know, I may have a different support need. Is there anything that you have that you can support me with? Or even like FYI, I'm, I'm, my kid is going to make like five different sounds in the next 30 minutes Mm -hmm. and you just have to be okay with it, I guess. Or like, (laughs) I'm trying to think of a better word to say, but like, it is going to be what it is. And I know this and I know we're, you know, we're we're doing ABA and blah, blah, blah. But I just am telling you just so you are aware. So don't come to me five days later to tell me that this is happening because I know it and I got it. (laughs) You know, like, I think it'd be interesting for parents or individuals to take that step and be like, I know it is what it is. And that's it. Instead of so then I think it would limit the top down coming down and hounding them and be like, did you know? Yes, I do know. I sit next to my (laughs) child every day. I know like, you know, so. Mm -hmm.
1: Yeah, that's, I, I love what you're saying about that. How like as siblings we can help by saying he's going to make noise and that's okay. He's going to move around and that's okay. I, I think there's different ways to worship and just kind of reminding everyone that, There are different ways to be, to worship, and that maybe that will make other people feel more comfortable and invited to the church as well. That's such a good point.
2: Yeah. Like leading by example, right? Just, yeah, Yeah. it should be this example. It's not the sitting quietly. it's, It's being you.
1: Yeah.
0: How is spirituality impacted by different parts of one's identity, ethnicity, culture, and disability?
1: I think sometimes like with disability, there's definitely that tension between just who you are and you know, you have strengths, you know, you know, you're different than other people, but who you were made to be is different than, you know, just the norm out there. And it's different than what some people say you should be, you know? And so, and I think that's in, in some cultures, it's like, well, you have a disability because of this and like there's that that stigma and so it's like i want to be like in the christian faith the child of god i want to do this i want to be amongst my community but is, is there something wrong with me so i think that tension really makes makes people think about like who am i and in a family like how do we actually fit into there Yeah, you know, the tensions are very much evident in my community, um, as well,
2: because I think as a population that had emigrated to this country, what, like maybe 50 years ago, 60 max, Mm
1: -hmm.
2: um, that is still trying to figure out where they fit within the American society, American paradigm, and then to have another layer of exclusivity, I think is really hard to think about and manage Mm -hmm. Um, and I think that that is, um, very evident, I think within our mosques specifically is that you can see that everyone wants to fit in, but then having a child with a disability somehow excludes you from the whole schema of things, according to a lot of the parents. And then they just feel like they don't fit anywhere. Um, and I think that also, and I've also noticed, um, and this could be very specific to like a few cases in my mosque, but women mothers typically feel more of the burden um and i don't know why it's like for example i've been told that they have to dress very modestly and wear white or do this and do that because they have a child with a disability and i was like what (laughs) what so you know it's it's this sense of um extinguishing your own desires because your child has a disability because you sometimes think that it may be you know, caused by God or by other factors and things like that. And so I think those tensions are also very evident and they could be gender-based, ethnicity-based, racialized experiences as well. I don't know how to mitigate them, but I do know they exist. Mm-hmm. So it's really hard sitting with that fact, I think, is to be vulnerable and be like, this exists and I see it every day. And I'm not sure how to, you know, disaggregate things from that big label of disability and just thinking that things are wrong, which is not, but yeah, yeah. education maybe.
0: So that I guess that will bring me to the next uh, question. Um, what resources are still lacking in regards to spiritual supports within disability communities?
1: Well, I know of one specifically is supporting direct support professionals to feel comfortable and to support somebody's spirituality in whatever way that is. So my, as I mentioned, my brother, Charlie went to church with us every Sunday. He went to events and all of this stuff. And when he was in his late teens, he moved to a group home. And after that, I don't think he stepped foot in a church for maybe 20 years. Right. And so it's, How do we deal with that? You know, how do parents communicate that? How does he communicate it? Especially when he he has more difficulty in communication. You know, he doesn't have conversations. It's more of, you know, question answer with him. And so he does not, you know, express his wants and needs unless it's like supper's coming up. This is what I want. I want to eat. But he's not able to express that on his own about, hey, I enjoy going to church. This is what I enjoy about it. And so for him, it's difficult. So how is that communication? How are we using like person-centered planning or person-centered approaches to really help him find where he fits in, where he belongs? Because he did like that when he was growing up. But once he was in a group home, he stopped going and they didn't, you know, there was one staff for two different people. If somebody else didn't want to go, how do you work with that? How do you plan and how do you support somebody who maybe has a faith different than your own? And so I think that's something where we really need to address and work on that to make sure they know what to do.
2: That is such a good point. You know, the amount of times I've heard people say like, exactly what you're saying, Dr. Hall is crazy, that we really need this and we don't have enough literature base around it. And we don't, have enough supports for the direct professionals to be able to provide these kind of services. You're so right because, you know, um, one of the parent that I was speaking to recently, they were saying how their child, um, when he get when he would get really stressed out, like before a test, he would recite prayers, and he would in his class and like um, high school, and it would be loudly. And so the teacher decided that they need to extinguish this behavior and make it so that it could be generalized. And so the individual then stopped completely. They didn't do it at the mosque. They didn't do it anywhere else. And yes, that behavior extinguished because it is maybe embarrassing to do that, but like we all have things that we do before a test to calm ourselves down. And some of us just say it in our head, right? That's the only difference. And so that I think having that knowledge would have been so important at that time for that instructor to then be able to provide supports that could help that individual manage that. But more importantly, just maybe a different way of calming themselves down. And so um, that's so important. And I also think like, even so I work a lot with transition planning, and I think one of the biggest gaps that I see right now is that we don't have enough supports or understanding of how to provide community supports that relate to faith-based planning. So we have community supports, like, you know, you can work within the the ice cream shop that your uncle owns, or you can, you know, be located next to a grocery store. But I don't think we often think about, like, is my sister going to be able to travel independently to the mosque when I'm not around or my mom's not around? Will an individual be able to work or volunteer at their mosque or their church if they would like to? And we don't consider those opportunities often as... um, you know, like feasible, meaningful employment opportunities. They're just seen as like internship or they're seen as a volunteering gig. It's not something that people necessarily see as a full-time meaningful employment. And I also think we need to think further about, you know, ourselves and our space in the world as related to our spirituality. Like in terms of my sister goes to the mosque every day. Why? Why? i don't know i don't i think it might be belonging it might be that she fully believes in it but if this is something that she really wants to do i wish it was something that was nurtured and fostered for her for you know since she was in middle school or earlier it was something that she decided to go and we just kind of were like okay cool let's let's go with the flow but it's not something we necessarily intentionally did so i wonder if having that intention there would increase her sense of belonging in that space
1: yeah and I think there are a lot of resources out there, but how in the world do you find them? Yeah. You know, there's, I, I'm i sure something's been done for everything, but if it's in a little pocket here in this state, somewhere in another state, how do we know about it? How do we learn what to do? And do we have to have specialized programs or can there just be a framework of just understanding and knowledge and learn a few things, but Like, where is that information? And so kind of bringing that all together to educate the faith communities, the members of the church or the faith community, just to to get them on the same page, I think.
0: How might we influence changes in our own spiritual communities to help support a more inclusive environment that benefits individuals with disabilities?
1: I think about one example with, well, Sharish, you kind of brought this up of being an example, kind of showing people that, you know, this is how I react when my brother does something. But then also when you meet other people with disabilities in your faith community, kind of being that example of, I'm going to go up and say, hi, it's okay to talk to people. Um, I'm going to sit by them. I'm going to show everyone that I am okay with this extra noise. So I think that's just important to show people that I'm comfortable with this. You can be too kind of thing. But I think it's also important to ask questions. And it could just be asking questions of the leaders of the church. Like, you know, what do you do? Have you thought about this? Is there a place for people? And how do you know that? So kind of starting those conversations could influence a lot of change. I know when I was younger at a church and I was a teacher so they of course put me on the education committee and so they turned to me and they said Sarah is there anything you think we're missing for our goals for the year and I was like well you know is there a place for people with disabilities at our church you know how are they welcomed and just that question prompted them to like look into it and they were like well would you like to start a friendship ministries program okay Not that that's the only way people can be involved, but that's one way that they could. So I think just being there and asking questions and being an example is very helpful. That's so great. Um,
2: You know, having that voice and then starting something and just having so many other voices, that's so inspiring. Um, You know, for us, we've done webinars for our mosques. um, And we had, what, like 50, 60 parents join across the country, which was kind of nice. We've, and then it was interesting because those webinars led to those parents forming like a group me, like a massive group me where they just talk and share resources and stuff. And that was really cool. Um, I think we've done brochures in the past or like little flyers of like disability etiquette for the leadership of the mosque. Mm -hmm. I don't know if they read them, (laughs) but we we produce stuff. (laughs) I don't know if it's sitting somewhere, Um, but I mean, we've done these little efforts, but I think I think I would love for individuals with disabilities to also be involved in this process. It's for them to bring about change from their own experiences and their voice. That would be amazing for someone to be like, hey. This is who I am and this is what I do. And if you want to join and hang out, let's do something. You know, we have all these camps and all these programs for kiddos. But then when you have a person with a disability, they have to sign like 20 safety forms and people are more hesitant for them to be mm-hmm. on board because no one wants to take the responsibility of being responsible for making sure this kid gets from, you know, so it's a lot more layers added to it. But I wonder, it doesn't have to be something exclusive if it's not re- if it's not easy to be a part of it. Then like you said, Dr. Hall, like create something else that's gonna provide that inclusivity um, and then invite other people to join in. Um, I think another thing that would be is to not infantilize individuals. Um, the reason my sister got, she, my sister is almost 30, but people still come up to her and yell at her like she's a 15 year old, 13 year old, you know? So, or people, you know, we'd be like, oh, that, that little girl smiles at me all the time. She must be so happy. I don't know. Did you ask her, have you spoken to her or do you just like wave at her from the far off? You know? So it would be nice to educate people on also that these are individual adults that have choices and decision-making and that we don't need to treat them as a kid. Um, you know, so I think that would be, that would be where I would like to start next time Mm
1: -hmm. I go on a mission to do some change. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Yeah. And you, you reminded me, I was thinking of just telling our stories and not that it has to be the story of Charlie and Sarah, but the story of, it could be, you know, the sibling relationship, or it could be like other people we meet when I was at that church. And I was, I was, I wasn't working with them. I was playing really with people with disabilities and the other church members. I met this young man, David, and he had gone to church there already, but when he went to church. He went with his mom and dad, and he was very quiet. He you know, was like Velcroed to their side the whole time. I think he said hello to like the pastor of the church, but he didn't really talk to anyone else. It was like in, sit, out. But then after he had been in the group with everyone else, he came to an event, and he was, of course, right by his mom, Velcroed to her side. He saw me, and he quickly unvelcroed himself, He quickly walked to me and was like, hi, Sarah, how are you? And I was just like, that is awesome. That is amazing. Like you could see his face light up. And I was just like, this is so good. And I thought, oh my gosh, it's not me helping him. He's making me belong in the church. I feel like I'm a part of the church because of him. So making sure people hear those stories, and like you said, having people with disabilities in those different positions, I think can make a huge difference.
0: How has the pandemic impacted individuals with disabilities within faith-based communities?
1: Just being less connected, I would say, Um, because maybe you just haven't seen people. And even participating via video, a lot of that's passive participation, maybe just watching something, or a lot of it's language-based. And so for my brother who doesn't have conversations, that would be very difficult because he he needs to be able to do something with people, to be with them, to maybe serve in a meaningful way. Maybe he's the one helping set the table and he has a, a valued role in the congregation because he's doing something, but it's very difficult to be a part of like language-based activities like that. So I feel, there are some people out there who just feel less connected right now.
2: Yeah, I would say that too. That's my experience as well. Um, Less connected. And I think it could also lead to like forgetting about some of the rituals and some of the sayings and prayers and stuff, because you're not doing them as often. Um, And then I think the major thing for us was that social aspect just disappeared from their lives completely. In addition to everything else, you know, it was just like, They had this one place that they would go to and it just it just kind of disappeared and i think it's also coming back into it i think it was a little more difficult i think the whole mask um the mask mandate um prevented a lot of some of my um some of the individuals i work with from coming into the mosque and then i think with that even those who could um you know wear a mask and things like that they things had changed, like you couldn't drink the holy water anymore, or you couldn't shake people's hands and you couldn't give people hugs. And so that really transformed the experience for them into something that was more based on individual aspects of the ritual more than the communal. And that's, that was a lesson for me too. I was like, wow, I didn't realize how much you really liked being with the community. Um, so that was, that was great to see. Um, I think also, I would say it's it was harder for a lot of the parents as well because a lot of the mosque, the mosque time was used as respite. And so that was really difficult. Um, but I've seen a lot of people just get back into the swing of things now. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, we still have a mask mandate and things like that, but I think they're very excited to, to get back into it um, and be part of the
1: community again.
0: What words of encouragement or advice might you have for any siblings in the midst of their own spiritual journeys?
1: I think I would say that it is okay to be where you're at. We're all on our own journey. There's no specific journey you have to be on. You don't have to be like others. And it's okay to have a journey with your sibling or just a journey on your own. So I think it's, you need to think about kind of who you are, what you need, and and be okay with that and be okay with, you know what, I'm not quite okay right now, or I would like to be more involved. I feel guilty. I went through those times as well, but it was, those were good for me because I could feel the pull. I could feel myself missing that aspect of my life. And so for me, it was a chance to, to understand that it was real, that it was something that was um, really important to me. So I would just say you're okay, and do it your way.
2: <laughs> I love that. I wish someone told me this when I was a teenager, because mm-hmm. I think it would have, it would have helped. <laughs> it would have helped. Um, you know, I think that in addition to what Dr. Hall suggested, I think it's not you. <laughs> you think it's you, you think it's the way you're doing things, or it's, It's not you. It's just the way society functions sometimes. And it's okay to step away from it if you need a break and you can can come back to it. It's okay to be in it the whole time. And I think there's a lot of space in faith and spirituality for you to exist um, alongside your sibling with a disability. So you don't have to do the disability work within the faith space if that's not your thing and if it's overwhelming at the time. Um, there's a lot of space where you can contribute and you can belong, um, and find inclusive spaces. Um, and another thing I would say is let your sibling be. (laughs) I mean, I was the younger, I was like, man, I wish you would just conform. I wish you would just do this. I wish it was just easier. And honestly, I, I let her be, and it was the best because I was like, this is what it is. And I'm just going to let you do you. And I will do me and we will go day to day. Um, And that was really helpful.
0: Thank you so much for taking the time being with us today and sharing everything. Uh, I'm sure there's going to be a lot of sibs out there who are going to get so much from this. So really appreciate your time. Thank you so much.
1: Yeah, thank you too. Thank you for having us. We appreciate it.
0: Find resources, tools, and information about the sibling experience on siblingleadership.org. The Sibling Leadership Network is a nonprofit and we rely on support from our audience. Find the donation button on our homepage and contribute to the ever growing sibling movement.